0: Good morning, friends. Yesterday at this exact time I was standing here when they said, okay, we're going to do it. You're going to go outside and do it on the wall. And that was like at 8.30, right on the nose. I started speaking at approximately 8.38. It took us just that little bit of time to get that all together. So that was pretty amazing. So... I declare that today is not Tuesday. Quakers traditionally have not used the traditional days of the week. But I want to call today instead Tombs Day. As in a tomb where people are buried. I've been fascinated with tomb stories from the Bible. There are a lot of Bible stories that take place in and around tombs. And uh, there's a bunch of them. Probably my favorite, and young friends know this pretty well because I always bring this one up, is in Mark chapter 5 about a man who lived among the tomb. Uh, he was a very much of an outsider, felt very exposed and vulnerable in the world, it seemed. He ran around naked or half-naked all the time, was fairly destructive and scary, but mostly hurt himself. He cut himself with stones, he would throw himself on the fire. Uh, the community tried to control him, they didn't have the resources necessarily, they would tie him up with ropes and chains, and he would always break out of them. And he elected to live away from the community, up in the tombs. And I've often wondered, you know, lots of reasons like why. You know, it's it's quite possible there was some mental illness there and uh, untreated and they didn't have the resources. Um, but But even so, why the tombs? And I wondered who was buried up there that was close to him, that maybe was that person who was there for him the most and he elected to live there amongst the tombs away from everyone else. And as the story goes in, in Mark 5, uh, Jesus comes and uh, and diagnoses the man with the diagnoses of the day that he was demon-possessed. Likely today, it would be a different diagnosis. We don't do demon possession uh, anymore in most places. Although in New York City, I've, there are still churches that I've attended that they still have demons that are diagnosed. But, uh, Jesus then, you know, helps the man. He extracts the demons, and unfortunately, at the expense of a herd of pigs nearby who get all the demons and drown in the sea, which of course didn't make the townspeople particularly happy. In fact, Jesus did not come out smelling like a rose in this story. The townspeople were upset and wanted to stone him, and I don't mean like having a party stoning but like stone him uh and so they like force out. and even the man that he saved that he helped so much who was then clothed and in his right mind i think he was unhappy with jesus uh at least at some part because he begged jesus to go with him as jesus got in the boat and went across with the disciples and jesus who's always like yeah come follow me everyone come follow me so uncharacteristically turns to the guy and says nah you know what, why don't you just stay here and tell everyone how amazing God is. Got to (laughs) go. And he leaves the man behind. You know, it's just kind of stunning that he leaves the man behind. And I kind of wonder what happened next, you know, in this community where all this was happening and the pigs are dead and the guy's in his right mind. We don't know exactly. So I'm fascinated with tomb stories. So today I'm going to tell a tomb story. I decided that today I'm really going to let loose, and um, <laughs> I know, and I was like, what I love about being in New England yearly meeting, I could come as myself, I don't have to necessarily present in a different way, I don't have to change up anything, and as Quakers, right, we're encouraged, uh, and, it, and you know, it's integrity is a big thing that we do. And and I'm so glad I can do that, you know, as a, as a gay man in this meeting, but also someone who is a Christian, who believes in God. And so I want to just put this out there that um I know that there are lots of different ways that people believe among us. Not everyone believes in Jesus like I do. Not everyone believes in God like I do. There are non theists and atheists among us. And I say that because I'm going to speak in the language that makes the most sense for me spiritually. And I will. I invite you to translate. So I'm definitely going to say, you know, the G word. Not genitals. That was yesterday. But I'm going to say God uh, a couple of times in, in my presentation. And I don't say this with any way of apologizing for that. I don't need to apologize. But just to recognize that not everyone in this space believes in God and definitely doesn't believe in God the way that I believe in God. So, tomb story. The Gospel of John, which is quite popular often among Quakers, is so unlike the other Gospels. In it, Jesus is, well, more Jesus. He's not just a teacher in John and a faith healer, but he's supercharged with divine power. He's very much the Son of God. John's narrative builds to a crescendo with an explosive resurrection scene of the risen Christ and an angel heralding Jesus' triumph over death. Now the Gospel of Mark, on the other hand, written years earlier, it just stops abruptly, this Gospel with a chaotic, ambiguous ending. Mark's tomb is presided over by a young man, not an angel, and the Gospel closes with the words, and they were afraid. In advance of the big resurrection finale in his Gospel, John gives us an example of Jesus' superpowers by recounting an incident about Jesus' friend, Lazarus. How many of you have heard of Lazarus before? Oh, that's good. I like when there's biblical literacy among friends. (laughs) I don't have to explain so much. Lazarus, who in the story is sick and dies and gets resurrected by Jesus in the end. It's a story that appears in none of the other Gospels. It's a big, miraculous story with a strong, assertive Jesus. Yet, even in this miracle story, in this Gospel that offers up the most divine of all the Christ, we see questions and doubts emerge. I'm going to read to you from Good as New. It's a radical retelling of the New Testament, a translation of the New Testament by by my friend John Henson. He writes about this story. He calls Lazarus Larry in it. And he says, Larry was taken ill. He lived in Date Grove with his sisters Mary and Martha. Mary is best known as the one who gave Jesus a foot massage with scented oil and used her hair as a towel. The sister sent a message to Jesus, Dear Leader, the friend you love is very ill. Although Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Larry, he seemed to take no notice of the news that Larry was ill and stayed put for another two days. Now to those friends who want to go back and read these stories, the references for today are John chapter 11, the whole chapter. And Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42. Now, I have to stop right here because I'm completely distracted by Mary fiddling with Jesus' feet and then wiping them with her hair. I, I know that foot washing was a common practice of the day, but rubbing a friend's feet with one's hair, it's so intimate and sensual and weird. Now, there are at least three different Marys in the gospel, okay? They get kind of confused sometimes. We, of course, have the most famous Mary of them all, Jesus' mom. Then there is Mary Magdalene, who, by the way, was never a prostitute. That's another woman who also washes his Jesus' feet, but they never tell us her name. Then we have this other Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. This same Mary also pops up in Luke chapter 10, where she does something even more transgressive than fondling the rabbi's feet. Something so bad that she gets rebuked for it by her sister Martha. I'm going to read it in the King James Version, and I always hear the King James Version with a funny British accent. It just, it makes sense, right? Jesus entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, doth thou not care that my sister hath let me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha. Thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, my evangelical pastors back in the day loved preaching from this passage. They classed all Christians into two distinct categories, asking, are you a busy, worrying Martha or a submissive, teachable Mary? They denounced Martha as the type of Christian always too busy doing things and complaining, even having the gall to question Jesus' actions. Women in the church were often accused by male pastors of being too much of a Martha. But with having to take care of all the children during service so they were not a nuisance to the men, and then preparing the after-service coffee... These women, like Martha cooking for Jesus and the gang, had little time to sit at his feet. Still, these harried Martha Christians, some female, some male, some other, routinely got rebuked from the pulpit. Martha, Martha, you are worried and easily upset about so many things. Then my pastors would go on to praise Mary. Mary. As the faithful servant, submitting to the teachings of Jesus, Mary is meek and mild, not questioning the Master, a true follower. Each sermon concluded with some version of the question, in your relationship with Jesus, are you a Mary or a Martha? The preacher followed up the question with an invitation, come down to the altar and rededicate your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come, sit at the feet of the Master. In the two Decades that I attended Christian churches, how many times did I walk, trudge, dash, or limp forward in response to altar calls? Fifty? A hundred? Three hundred times? I really lost count. I think of Times Square Church, a New York City Pentecostal congregation. It's still housed in a former Broadway theater which I attended from 1987 to 1994. During that time, at the end of most services, you would regularly find me at the altar. Now, the services at Times Square Church lasted for about two hours. Pastor David Wilkerson preached hellfire and brimstone. He warned us that catastrophes destined to plague America were on their way because of our chronic wickedness. The consequences of our sin were going to provoke weather disasters, financial crises, and mass social disorder, which he usually said were evidenced by bands of maraudering, homosexuals, raping, and pillaging. (laughs) That came up a lot, these homosexual gangs, which I've never run into. (laughs) I mean, I've been to FLGBTQC, but it's not like that. In my early 20s, I consumed a steady diet of this severe message in hopes that the old-time religion marinated in Puritan dread, would keep my gay desires at bay. At the end of many services, I went forward to renounce sin, come back from my backsliding ways, return to my first love, rededicate my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, or all of the above. In addition to Brother Dave, as we called Pastor Wilkerson, the church retained on staff Four or five other full-time ministers. These pastors, along with lay ministers, manned the altar to offer quickie pastoral counseling. These altar trips always ended with a minister praying fervent prayers for me, uttered in intense whispers, with one hand on the front of my forehead and another placed at the center of my chest. Actually, I don't know, it just feels good doing that. One time as I approached the altar, which was just the floor in front of the orchestra pit, I was lucky enough to land in front of Brother Victor. He was a full-time pastor, uh, very popular for his strong preaching, the only black minister in the whole church. Brother Victor was a transplant from Texas who stood six feet tall with broad shoulders and massive hands that won script footballs during a stint as a semi-professional football player. At the altar, I revealed to Brother Victor my chronic problem. I said, I'm struggling with homosexuality. I love Jesus. I really do. But I keep backsliding. I don't know. Maybe it's like Brother Dave is saying in his sermon, I haven't repented from my heart. So Brother Victor straightened up and looked me right in the eye, taking on the tone and stance of a football coach addressing a failing quarterback. In short, forceful breaths, he barked, This is a fight. You are in a war. You must do battle against the enemy Satan each and every day, every moment of the day. Then he looked to his left and his right. He leaned in close, our noses almost touching, and he whispered so that no other minister or sinner at the altar nearby could hear. And I know what I'm talking about. Because I fight this very same fight every day of my life. With that revelation, his eyes softened for a moment as he looked into mine. Brother Victor then switched back to man-of-God mode and continued, Let me pray for you, my brother. And nearly covering my entire head with one hand and pressing firmly into my sternum with his other, he prayed through clenched teeth, Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, I come to you and I bind principalities and powers of darkness in the name of the resurrected Christ. I beseech you on behalf of my brother here that he no longer be molested by the evil forces that hinder him and keep him from walking before you in righteousness. We know that the spirit is willing, but you know, oh Lord, that our flesh is oh so weak. Fortify, my brother, with your mighty spirit of victory. Cast down the enemy his life and in all our lives that we may conquer Satan and his evil forces and these dark perversions at last. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. He hugged me and he said, Go forth in resurrection power, valiant warrior of the cross. How many times did I hear the question at the end of a sermon, Are you a Mary or a Martha? Are you humble and submissive to Jesus, or are you a busybody running around worried about many things? In the Luke story, Martha criticizes Mary for lounging about at the feet of Jesus and for not helping in the kitchen. Martha is clearly offended and annoyed by Mary's behavior and, by extension, Jesus' permissiveness. My take about the Martha story, though, and Mary, and what Martha finds unacceptable, perhaps even more shocking than even the other feet, oil, hair incident, is that in this case, Mary breaks out of her prescribed gender roles. Mary leaves off food preparation, something designated exclusively for women in that culture, and instead takes on the role of a male disciple learning at the feet of the rabbi Jesus. In the story, Jesus upsets these gender norms by affirming Mary's social transgression. I could even imagine him sending one of his disciples into the kitchen, his male disciples, why don't you take her place? Upsetting the apple cart. Uh, Now my ministers at the time never even hinted uh, of the text and having this particular meaning. They turned it all into a metaphor. In the very same churches that forbade women from teaching and from being ordained, these male ministers praised Mary for being submissive at the feet of Jesus. In fact, in both of the Gospels, we see both Mary and Martha who are women who are far from meek and submissive. Consider once again Mary and Martha in the Gospel of John with the illness of Lazarus and his subsequent death we see Martha active taking charge and challenging Jesus once again. Here's the passage. When Jesus arrived, he found that Larry had been buried for four days before. When Martha heard that Jesus was on his way, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I wonder how she said it, actually. Did she just say, if you had been here, my brother would not... I, you know, She went out of town. She met him on the way and said, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So they have an exchange, and Martha having her say, she goes home. And her sister is there at home grieving, unwilling to leave the house. And I don't know what the words exchanged exactly, but there was some, to one extent, she said, well, the teacher is calling for you. So Mary gets up. I don't know the conflict she's had in her heart. I mean, this their good friend delayed, waiting days to come to help. And finally he's here. So she goes, and once again she falls at the feet of Jesus. This time not to wash his feet and worship him, not to learn at his feet, but literally to accuse him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And something breaks in Jesus when he sees her weeping. He begins to weep. And they go to the tomb. And it's this tomb with a stone laid across the entrance. And Jesus then says, Take the stone away. And Martha, who's always practical, says in the King James, But Lord, by this time, he stinketh. (laughs) I love that. He stinketh. Uh, And yeah, we'd already been decomposing, he'd been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus said, It's all right. They move away the stone, and Jesus. Cries in a loud voice. Like in the Greek, it says, um, like a dog, uh, tortured in pain. Lazarus, come out! And Lazarus, who's been dead the whole time, is all wrapped up in grave clothes. Back then, those days, they didn't, uh, prepare their dead like we do. They, they actually wrapped them up very much like a mummy without the embalming. So Lazarus comes to life, but he's all wrapped up in these grave clothes and he can barely move. So he comes out of the tomb, I guess, kind of like this. I don't know. See, when you're an actor, you have to think about this stuff, right? And then Jesus says something very practical. He says to his disciples, take off the grave clothes and let him go which is very considerate, you think. You know, the guy's like smothering. And the disciple's reaction is something like, because technically in that culture, you're not supposed to be touching dead bodies. You become unclean. But what about this? What is this? What kind of gift are we unwrapping here? But they do. And they get their hands dirty, and they unwrap him, and they love him back into life. Years later, I went back to Times Square Church where I had attended for so many years. Uh, ten years later, and I walked in the door, and the was, service was going, and there were some people I knew and some people I didn't know, and I was just kind of asking for different people, and I asked somebody, is Brother Victor here? I'd love to talk to Brother Victor. <laughs> and uh, he said, oh no, Brother Victor's not here anymore. He went back to Texas. And it's so strange, Brother But after he went back home, he took his life. And nobody knows why. And I stood there and I thought to myself, I think I might know why. And I am so grateful that I stand here in front of you unwrapped from my grave clothes. And that I've had friends, many in this room, who have been responsible for helping that process of loving me back to life. And we have a great gift to offer the world. Our society of friends. Because there are people who are looking for home. Looking for community. Looking to be unwrapped.